Welcome. You are listening to Mountain View Scattered. This is an audio companion to our weekly church gatherings. It is a way to stay connected while you are away and to learn more about our community, how we can best reach and serve it. I'm your host, Wade. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices or is sufficient for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way that God does. Now, as a reminder, here in 1 Peter, um, we as readers and the original readers should be growing in faith and faithfulness all the time, but especially when they or we are suffering. And then a big idea for this week, something for us to focus in on, While living in Christ's victory, lose your willingness to sin and gain a willingness to suffer. Now, it sounds kind of funny like that, right? Stop sinning and start suffering. And that's kind of what we're reading in the text this week. Now, we can't just do that, but we're going to see how Peter is directing us to help us go in that direction. In fact, another way that we could... Because suffering is not the case for everyone. That's not a truth, uh, that's not an experience that everyone has. So maybe we could say it like this, gain a willingness to be obedient, even unto the point of suffering. All right? So we'll start there. Since therefore Christ suffered, therefore, right? We always ask, what is it therefore? So since therefore What are we going back to? Well, we're going back to verse 18 of chapter 3 that we studied last week, okay? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. All right? Since, therefore, Jesus did that, since he traded himself, the righteous, for the unrighteous, since he suffered in the flesh to bring us to God, arm yourselves. Now, of course, when I think of arming yourselves as an American, I think of something different than just preparing yourself for something, right? Um, But here we see we're we're supposed to be arming ourselves with a way of thinking, a way of thinking about things. But Peter never actually says what that way of thinking is, okay? (laughs) He does throughout the entire text of 1 Peter, but He doesn't necessarily right now. What is this way of thinking? It's the way in which Christ is thinking. So arming ourselves is not just with 
a positive thinking, not just a thinking that can get us through the day. Um, The content, if you want to say it like that, what is inside all of our thinking is thinking in the same way that Christ did, and that is sacrificing himself, putting himself um, on the line, the righteous for the unrighteous. And this should be our way of thinking um, as we suffer. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Okay, now we know a lot of people that if that were just a general statement, what happens when they suffer? Let's say someone without Christ, maybe someone that is in Christ. They become more bitter, right? We do become bitter when we suffer. If we don't have the correct mindset, that is the mind of Christ going into it and coming out of it. So, how can we say then that someone who has suffered has ceased from sinning? Well, Peter's going to explain that a little bit more in the next verse, but let's just say it like this, to cease can simply mean have a clean break from something. Okay, Um, To repent, to turn your back on something and start moving in another direction That's kind of the language we're getting here, to cease, to cut yourself off from relying on and filling yourself with sin, okay? Um, Peter is not demanding perfection because if he were, he would be going against things that John said in his first letter in chapter 1, verse 8, things that James says in his letter um, that basically what John says is that If you think that you have no sin, you're a crazy person, okay? (laughs) And so Peter's not telling us that we are sinless if we have suffered and believe in Jesus. But he is saying that if we have suffered, there is something unique going on in our lives. Maybe it's proof of something, or maybe it is the result of the suffering. All right, let's see in verse 2 what Peter's telling us. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Okay, a couple things here. When we're looking back then at ceasing to sin, uh, what we see is that this ceasing from sin results in something else, okay? It results in obedience to God. All right, that's the first thing we notice. Another thing that we notice in verse 2, for the rest of the time, okay, um, we're going to die, right? We know this. We know this. Um, I think about it often because I'm a morbid person, okay? But we're going to die, and Peter's reminding us of that, and he reminds us that again, again, a little bit later, um, But for the rest of our time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Okay. So, if suffering the flesh, suffering in the flesh has caused us to have a clean break away from sin, what can this mean for those that suffer? Well, this can mean, as we started reading in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, that fiery trials will be proof to us that our salvation, that is, that Jesus is real. 
So that can be one product of or one end of suffering. We have made a clean break from sin because it has been proven to us that what Jesus did for us on the cross is real and our salvation is real. However, another way of looking at this, and I think that both of these things are true, is that for someone that is stuck in their sin but claims Christ and suffers, one of two things are going to happen, right? They're going to become that embittered person that is never really relying on Jesus, or they're going to be that person who realizes just how silly their sin is. And they're going to turn away from that sin even more and turn to Christ. Okay? And I think that Peter here is leaving both of those things as possibilities. It is someone that knows that they're saved, that is being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, that is being brought more into the likeness of Jesus, and then their, their salvation is made more real to them through suffering. And also, those that maybe weren't sure about this whole thing, um, but now that they have suffered, now that they have uh, confessed that Jesus is true both with their words and their actions, they suddenly realize how much they need to turn, they need to turn away from their sin. One thing that uh, one writer um, pulls out of this is that it's almost as though we get the idea here that suffering becomes a way of committing ourselves more and more to Jesus. And I'm trying to say this in a gentle way, but <laughs> it's almost like um, giving your life to Jesus a little bit more. Okay? Now, if that doesn't sound strange to you, that's okay. Maybe it doesn't have to sound strange to you. To me, that sounds very strange, right? Because I, at some point in my life, um, I knew that Jesus was my Savior. I acknowledged that. And since then, I have been living in the safety of his victory. Okay? But it seems as though Peter here might be implying that suffering also can be a further commitment to Christ. Now, here's what I don't want to say. I don't want to say that suffering is a necessary second experience, right? And we hear that kind of language all the time, a second experience that really makes us more saved, if you want to say it like that. Um, that's not where Peter's taking this. That's not where I'm taking it. And yet, this suffering does have some sort of deepening effect on the hearts and lives of people that confess Christ. Um, there's a lot more that we could go into with that, but maybe those waters are a little bit too muddy for me to step into quite yet. For the time that is past suffices, okay? Um, I, I love this because, the, at least in my translation that I'm reading from here, the ESV, the language is very serious, okay? As all the language in the ESV is, it's very serious. Um, you could say, look, all the time that has passed, it's sufficient, okay? It's done. Basically, if I say, hey, kids, go clean up the living room, and then I walk into the living room, and it's even messier than it was when I asked them to clean up, sometimes I 
have to be the drill sergeant. I have to be the overlord, and I have to make sure they're doing their job. And, and sometimes, I just have to say, okay, you've done enough here. Go do something else, okay? And then I end up cleaning it up. Um, I kind of get that image in my mind of what Peter's saying here, okay? For, for those that are Christians and maybe want to dip back into their old lives, and we're going to see what those old lives consist of here in just a minute, um, he's saying, you've done enough here, okay? You've done enough here. It's time to move on to something else. So the time that you have spent is enough, okay? The time that you've spent in the past is enough for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Now, this is really interesting, and we've gone through this over and over again, but I just, I got to bring it up one more time, because here we have Peter saying the, what the Gentiles are doing. Who's he talking to? He's not just talking to Jews. We've talked about that, right? This is the church. This is Jews and Gentiles brought together into one new people. Wait, there's our answer, right? We've been brought together into one new people. And what Peter's doing here is he's using an older language that he would have been familiar with and that we are familiar with from knowing the scriptures. Um, what the Gentiles are doing. That is, people that don't know Jesus. Basically, Peter's saying, look, you're no longer Jew. You're no longer Gentile. You are a Christ follower. You are a Christian and you don't need to waste any more of your life doing what the Gentiles do. Uh, living in sensuality, okay, very literally, living by the senses, right? Whatever I want to do that makes me happy, I do it. Why? Because it makes me feel happy, right? This is sensuality. Now, usually when we think of sensuality, we think of something else, and that's a part of this list as well. But sensuality here would literally just mean living by what makes you happy. Um, passions. Uh, basically just going after whatever it is that you want, right? Being uninhibited in what it is that you desire. That is that nothing is a no-no, okay? <laughs> so you're living by your senses. Nothing is no. Nothing is off limits in your life. And then we have drunkenness. And we've talked about this before earlier on in 1 Peter. Drunkenness here does include drunkenness, okay? But that's not all that it includes. This includes drunkenness or the filling of yourself to the point of loving it more than anything else. Being drunk on love, being drunk on life, right? Being high on life would be another thing, and maybe he's talking about that as well. But drunkenness here can be filling up yourself with anything that is making your mind to be bent more towards that than it is bent towards Jesus, right? And why, why do we need to make that distinction? Because we're going to talk about drinking again here in just a second. Um, orgies and drinking parties, probably don't need to define that, except for one is a party filled with lots of sensuality, and another is a party or a competition filled with alcohol, right? So, <laughs> so 
we know these things. Um, drinking parties especially, I love that that is the way that it is translated. Uh, I forget where it's at in Proverbs, but you have this picture that the, the teacher in Proverbs is, is writing to us, and it's, um, you know, you don't want to be a hero because of how much you can drink. Right? You don't, you don't want to be a hero because of the way you act at a drinking party, as it were. Um, and as we know, most parties turn, to, turn out to be drinking parties, right? But um, finally, lawless idolatry. And what Peter's saying here might sound a little bit strange, because look, these are Christians. And lawless idolatry would mean doing something that even the Roman government would say, wow, that's disgusting, okay? So that actually doesn't include these other things that we've already listed. This includes some other kind of thing. Uh, and Peter doesn't give us a clue as to what kind of sin that is, except for we can make a couple of guesses, right? Um, God's first people, Israel, found themselves in this position many times. Um, also, when Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, there are many things going on there at that church, even though he calls them saints, he calls them believers, that go far against what Jesus would want for us and also push hard against even what the Roman culture in Corinth says is a good thing. So lots of things that we shouldn't be doing here, right? But here's the beauty of this. Um, our faith is not defined by what we shouldn't be doing. Okay? Now, don't misunderstand me. Peter is calling us to obedience. He's calling us to be faithful to the, to the Scripture. He's calling us to be faithful to what it is that God desires for us. And he is giving us a list of things that we are not to be doing. Okay? But we're not defined by this list. Does that make sense? There are believers here in this church um, that are pretty clearly, there were believers in Corinth who were pretty clearly caught up in these things. And they need um, an awakening. They need a slap to the face, okay? <laughs> they need a slap to the face to understand what it is that they're really doing. And Peter says, there's enough of that. There's been enough of that. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Malign would be showing a kind of hate towards you. Uh, more, literary, more literally, it's, it's translated abuse, and they abuse you. Now again, over and over again, we've talked about that this probably is not physical abuse on a wide scale. This isn't Christians being put to death quite yet for their faith. Um, this is verbal abuse in households. This might be physical abuse. It probably is. Um, but the reason why it's translated malign here in the ESV is simply so that we don't get it confused with a physical abuse. But Christians are being verbally abused. They are being hated in different ways in the culture. They're probably being cut off from uh, economic benefit. They're probably being cut off from uh, 
being friends with people that are invited to those parties because they do not partake in it. In fact, it says here, um, they are surprised when Christians don't join them. They're surprised when Christians don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. Now, I just, I don't know if we can draw a direct um, connection to this, but I do find it kind of interesting what happens in a flood. We're not swimming in debauchery here, right? (laughs) We're drowning in debauchery or in sin. Things that go against what God wants for us. So, not only are they drowning in it, but what did we just talk about last week, right? We talked about Noah and his flood. I can't help but in my mind kind of make a connection with the language here that this flood of debauchery leads to what we're going to be reading there in verse 5 in just a second. But here's the interesting thing, and we talked about this, I think, two or three weeks ago, um, In the Greco-Roman culture, okay, it's the time and the place where the Christians were living right then, the culture that they were in the middle of, um, everything that we know Christians should be doing, uh, Greco-Roman or Romans would have said, thumbs up, you know, take care of each other, um, be honorable, be truthful, all of these things would have been very good things that that people would have looked highly upon in theory, okay? These are all good ideas. Everyone would say that. But no one seems to think it's a good idea. In fact, they're surprised when Christians don't go along with this sin. And that might sound like, uh, well, you know, in our culture today, Christian things are upheld very well. Right? I mean, we're, we live in a Christian culture, and uh, people here love the same things that Christians are supposed to be loving, taking care of each other, and taking care of your family, and taking care of your community, and um, is that true? I don't know if that's true, right? I mean, yeah, sure, we all value these things. But the reality is that during this time, everything that Christians were supposed to value, let's just say it like this. Um, Even though it was valued, no one was living it out in a healthy way. Um, And maybe even uh, they were doing the exact opposite of what they knew they were supposed to do. Why is that? (laughs) <laughs> because that's what we always do. Right? So now today, in the world around us, people do. They value their families. And you know what they do? They put their little families up on an altar and they worship them. And then when their family collapses out from underneath that altar, they just end up sacrificing that family on the altar, right? And they become embittered because, well, I tried to do everything that I could for, the, for my family. Um, we know that we are supposed to be a community that takes care of one another. And yet, when we look at the world around us, even though lip service is done to this, more often than not, community 
and the taking care of community is used for selfish gain and for mutual benefit in a negative way than it is for taking care of those around us. Individuality is used as an excuse to be selfish and, forgive me for this one, an entrepreneurial spirit, the ability to start something new, is used as an excuse to be unfaithful to everything around us. So the culture around us has many values that we would say, yes, we like that. And then we live it out in a total wrong way or we ignore the things that we know that we're supposed to like. But they, now this is to unsaved people, right? This is to people that do not know Jesus. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Time out. Let's just, I got to pick the low-hanging fruit here before we go any further. Um, This is written to Christians. Who's this being read by? Christians. Okay, Christians. (laughs) Um, How are unbelievers supposed to know that they will be, they will have to give an account? How are they supposed to know this? We're supposed to tell them this. Right? Okay. That's the low-hanging fruit. But here's the surprising thing, all right? Also in this culture, it would have been absolutely astounding that someone would claim that a religion that they don't practice has authority over them. Okay? It would have been, well, no, 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 no. I don't, that's, that's not my family God. That's, a, that's not the little person I have up on my, my mantle. Um, I'm not going to be held accountable to this Jesus. Right? And um, once again, if we look around us today, that is very much the case, right? Okay, yes, that is true to you, and I'm sure that you will be judged as harshly as you say that everyone else is going to be. Um, but here's what Peter is saying, that everyone is going to give an account. Everyone is going to give an account. The living and the dead. And here's the other really interesting word. Is ready to. Is ready to. And this is probably talking about God the Father here. He's ready to judge. Taking into um, our minds what we studied last week though too, uh, the patience that God showed in the days of Noah i got to ask myself this question now. Why, if God is ready to judge, would he not just judge? Maybe, like in the days of Noah, God's patience is waiting. What is it waiting on? (laughs) He's waiting on the truth of the gospel to be proclaimed. He's waiting for the good news of Jesus to be shared. Peter continues in verse 6, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. All right, oh man, Peter, we just went through this last week. Why would you start talking about preaching to dead people again? (laughs) Okay. Uh, Well, very similarly, 
um, the preaching was done to these dead people while they were still alive. But it's two different dead people now, okay? So we know the first group of dead people uh, was in the days of Noah, when the Spirit of Christ was proclaiming through Noah the, new, the good news that was to come that was pictured through the ark being a way to salvation in Noah's day, okay? Um, and here, uh, these dead people, thankfully, seem to be saved dead people, okay? Um, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Why do we say that they're saved? That though judged in the flesh the way people are, as we've just read in verse 5, everyone will be judged, the living and the dead. Um, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Okay? Now, we know that everyone's soul is eternal, if we want to say it like that. We know that everyone goes on forever, if we want to say it like that. But we also know here that those living in the Spirit the way God does. Now, again, this is not capital S, Spirit, um, this is talking about a spiritual life, as it were, a life that is um, in a, oh man, these words, a spiritual dimension, okay? Um, that is the way in which those that have died, that have believed in Jesus throughout all of time are waiting right now for Jesus' return and then the eventual being reunited with their bodies. Okay, with a glorified body like Jesus had when he was resurrected from the dead. Um, so these people are alive in the spirit, in a spiritual way, that is. As God is, right? So they are with God. Okay, so these dead are different in that they were... Um, these people are those that are saved, unlike those in Noah's day who are now in prison, okay? Those who are in hell. Okay. Verse 6 also brings, because these are uh, people that are saved, they are living in the Spirit the way that God does, this is really good news for Christians at this time as well as right now for us. I don't know about you, but I, I take it for granted, okay, because I've heard it preached to me so many times that um, my salvation is secure, and I've heard it over and over and over again that um, I've heard it over and over and over again that when I die, I will go to be with God in heaven, okay? That's, I've heard that millions of times, literally, right? Uh, but to the people that Peter is writing to, this may not have been something that was preached to them all the time. In fact, the world around them would have been saying something very different. The world around them would say that when you die, that's, that's it. And maybe there would be some lip service given to the fact that, yeah, 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 no, when you die, your good deeds and your bad deeds will be put on a scale and weighed and blah, 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 blah. But come on, don't worry about that. You don't have to worry about any of that. That's... You're dead, basically, would be the assumptions that are made there. Um, but for Peter's readers here, this is extremely important because they realize when reading this, when hearing this, that they are meant 
for another life. Okay? And they are meant for a life that is secure in Christ's death. That is to say that when death comes, they do not lose salvation. Look, they've been suffering. They thought for sure that Jesus being their salvation would keep them safe, and that's not the case. They are suffering. And so what are we led to believe here then? We're led to believe that we do not lose salvation at death. We keep on living, and we are still saved after that time. That might sound very simple, and I might have said a very simple thing in a confusing way. And yet... This would have been such good news for Peter's readers, his hearers, okay? Moving into next week, um, we're going to be going through verses 7 through 11. And uh, here's what I'm really excited about going into next week. Um, we see from these six verses that there's trouble in the church, right? And we've seen throughout the first three chapters that there's trouble in the church right now, that they are being persecuted, that they are suffering. And yet what we start to see here, both by what, does, what we're not supposed to do, and then next week what we are supposed to do, um, we see that the church is a total different way of living. It's a community that is apart from any other community in the world. You know, all these sins that are listed above, um, these would have all been related to the way that people worshipped. The way that they were told to worship gods. Right? Um, that you would... <laughs> Um, over-drink, over-eat, that you would over-other things, over-party. And that was a way that you worshipped. And God is saying, look, that's not the way that you worship me. That's not the way that you worship me. And next week, we're going to see some ways in which Peter is giving the church to live faithfully and to live obediently, especially with one another. Um, there was a book that was released this past year called The Benedict Option, and you don't need to know all the details of this book, but um, the idea of the book was simply that, you know, we as Christians have the ability to live in, like, separate communities and be off doing our own thing. Um, okay? Uh, yeah. Actually, it's not a revolutionary idea. In fact, we're seeing it here in 1 Peter. The church is an alternative way of living. It is an alternative community. It is a community that works. And if it does not work, if it doesn't work to take care of each other and to help us set ourselves apart from the world, not to be separate from it, but to look different from it, then it's clearly not a very Christian community. It's not a very Christ-like community. So this week, oh, sorry, just one second. So this week, um, 
we are acknowledging that we live inside of Christ's victory. Um, he has won a victory on our behalf. And in the midst of that victory, we need to be losing our willingness to sin. We need to make a clean break from our sin. This does not mean that we do not sin. What it does mean that we desire obedience more than we desire sin. We desire obedience more than we desire to appease our own flesh and to live by our own senses and to um, live by our own happiness. Let me pray for us, okay? God, thank you for being a redeeming God that is always bringing your people back to yourself. Lord, you have set us aside, and because of this, we are outsiders. You have handpicked us to be different, to live ever and always in a more set-apart way, and ever and always in a more obedient way to Jesus, our Savior. It is through your Son, Jesus, that we have hope that is alive. It moves and it deepens and it does not die. It is through Jesus that we have a new and forever life that has been gifted to us. Lord, we are thankful that it is not wrapped in some frail paper and cheap tinsel, but like your word, it is unable to be destroyed. Like your goodness and holiness, it cannot be ruined. Like your strength, to bring us back to yourself, it is never weakening. God, when faced with pain and challenges, we, challenges, we know that you do not test us so that we will lose hope. We suffer so that you can show your faithfulness. God, thank you that you do not ask us to guard the gift that you have given to us in Christ. You promise to keep it safe on our behalf for us. Another promise that we know will prove true on the day that Christ returns. Father, help us to put on our clothes for work, that is to prepare our minds for what we know awaits us in this world this week. And in the ways that we choose to live, uh, the ways that we chose to live before knowing you, Lord, may we set them aside. Keep Christ always in front of us. Keep our eyes always focused on him. Give us the mind of Christ, leaving behind the things that do not honor you, and to give ourselves wholly to obedience to you. Lord, you have not given us all of the comfort that Peter writes to us so that we can move throughout our days just feeling safe. You have blessed us so that we can go. You have not blessed us so that we can just go and live out our blessing. You have called us to bless others even in the middle of hardship and trial. God, we will fail this week, so we thank you that once and for all, Jesus suffered for our sins the righteous for the unrighteous, 
to bring us to you. Help us to rest in that and to rely on Christ more fully every single day. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. Thanks for listening. And remember that you were brought into the church by the saving work and person of Jesus. Also, that you are sent out to tell everyone about him. We look forward to you joining us for the next episode of Mountain View Scattered.